Amen. Our text this morning is from the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 23. I will read uh, verses 1 through 23. As soon as I find it. These are the words of God. Now these be the last words of David. David, the son of Jesse, said, and the man who was raised up on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob and the sweet psalmist of Israel. The Spirit of the Lord spake by me, and his word was in my tongue. The God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spake to me. He that ruleth over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. And he shall be as the light of the morning, when the sun riseth, even a morning without clouds, as the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after rain. Although my house be not so with God, yet he hath made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and sure. For this is all my salvation and all my desire, although he make it not to grow. But the sons of Belial shall be all of them as thorns thrust away, because they cannot be taken with hands. But the man that shall touch them must be fenced with iron and the staff of a spear, and they shall be utterly burned with fire in the same place. These be the names of the mighty men whom David had. The Tachmanite that sat in the seat, chief among the captains, the same was Adino the Esnite, and he lifted up his spear against 800 whom he slew at one time. And after him was Eleazar the son of Dodo the Ahohite, one of the three mighty men with David, when they defied the Philistines that, they, that were gathered together to battle, and the men of Israel were gone away. And he arose and smote the Philistines until his hand was weary, and his hand clave unto the sword, and the Lord wrought a great victory that day. And the people returned after him only to spoil. And after him was Shammah, the son of Agi the Herahite. And the Philistines were gathered together into a troop, which was a, place of, a piece of ground full of lentils. And the people fled from the Philistines. But he stood in the midst of the ground and defended it, and slew the Philistines, and the Lord wrought a great victory. And three of the thirty chief went down and came to David in the harvest time unto the cave of Adullam. And the troop of the Philistines pitched in the valley of Rephaim. And David was then in an hold. And the garrison of the Philistines was then in Bethlehem. And David longed and said, Oh, that one would give me drink of the water of the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. And the three mighty men brake through the host of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem, that was by the gate, and took it and brought it to David. Nevertheless, he would not drink thereof, but poured it out unto the Lord. And he said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Is not this the blood of the men that went in jeopardy of their lives? Therefore he would not drink it. These things did these three mighty men. And Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was chief among three. And he lifted up his spear against three hundred and slew them and had the name among three. Was he not most honorable of three? Therefore he was their captain. Howbeit he attained not unto the first three. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, the son of a valiant man of Kabzeel, who had done many acts, he slew two lion-like men of Moab. He went down also and slew a lion in the midst of a pit in a time of snow. And he slew an Egyptian, a goodly man. And the Egyptian had a spear in his hand. But he went down to him with a staff and plucked the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and slew him with his own spear. These things did Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and had the name among the three mighty men. He was more honorable than the thirty, but attained not to the first three, and David set him over his guard. Let us pray.
Our Father, we thank you for your word, which you have given to us, the revelation of yourself. We thank you that you have given us all we need for life and godliness. I pray we would attend to your word, that we would have hearts receptive to it, uh, and I pray that you would bless uh, the preaching of your word this morning. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. 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 Be seated. A caveat to begin with, this, this may be a sermon that appeals most to the 12-year-old males in our midst, uh, but one of the, the glories of the scriptures is the incredible breadth of genre that we find, right? You look through, through the scriptures, you have history, you have genealogy, you have law, you have meticulous cataloging of furniture, uh, you have apocalyptic prophecy, you have love poetry, you have fairy tales, you have letters to groups, you have letters to individuals, you have parables, you have thorough and careful theological argumentation, you have narratives, and so on. Right? All are, are included in, in between these pieces of leather. And they are all for our instruction and our edification. Right? These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Uh, the, this is the only rule, as the Catechism says, to direct us how we may glorify God and enjoy Him. And so this book gives us stories of courage and heroism as well. And so if this ends up being a, a, a manly sermon, uh, it is because God gives us manly passages. So let us attend to them. A um, little bit of context, where, where does this passage, this chapter, fall uh, in, in the, the, the story of second, First and Second Samuel? First and Second Samuel deal with uh, the life and reign of both Saul and then David, right? Tracing Saul's rise and fall and tracing David's, David's rise and, and uh, kingship. Um, this particular chapter, chapter 23, comes at the very, very end of 2 Samuel in what some have called a, an appendix to the books of 1 and 2 Samuel. Why so? Because they don't seem to fit chronologically. Right? All, all the rest of 1 and 2 Samuel pretty much go right, linearly. And then you get to the end and you have almost some flashbacks. Right? So, and oh, oh, by the way, this also happened. So this is to call it an appendix isn't to downplay its importance or its, its uh, uh, authority, but simply to say this is stories that didn't necessarily fit or the, the author chose to bring out and to highlight uh, this particular point. Um, so the life and reign of David uh, can be traced from very humble beginnings, right? He ultimately rises. He, he kills Goliath. Uh, he's favored of Saul, then too favored, and then he goes into the wilderness for a while, and, and he has his, his exile, right? Saul dies, he comes back, he's anointed, or he's, he's crowned king of, of Judah, spends seven years reigning there, ultimately then is crowned king of the whole of Israel, and then reigns for, for the rest of his life. Um, you can kind of divide up the reign of David, though, especially in 2 Samuel, uh, with kind of up through chapter 11 is, is one set, and then after chapter 11 is, is another set of, of issues. So what, what happens in chapter 11? This is uh, the story of David and, and Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah. So up until, up until chapter 11, you know, David's the golden boy. He can't miss, right? He is a you know, military commander of, of incredible genius. He's uh, politically savvy. He's uh, an effective diplomat. He's a good administrator. Um, he you know, reforms the, the worship of Israel. Uh, the, the, man, the man can't miss. Uh, and then you see this, this after his sin with, with Bathsheba, and more particularly after his murder of Uriah, you have the rest of his reign plagued with trouble. Right, and it's a it's a horrible set of, of tragedies, and yet he remains, right? He repents, and so he remains God's king. But it's a very different 
set up. So this is chapter three, sorry, chapter 23. All the trouble of David's reign continues all from, from chapter 12 up until chapter 20. He has the Absalom's rebellion, and then he has, even after that, another, another civil war, another rebellion that he has to put down. So just in the context of, of the book of 2 Samuel, this is where we're coming in. Okay, so there's been his, his early reign, or, or the beginning portions of his reign, where everything was, was wonderful, and then the second portion of the book, trouble, toil, rebellions, and then this is now the end, right? It's the end of David's reign. Um, it's divided up, this, this passage, this chapter is divided up into, into two sections. You have the last words of David, and then you have the stories of his mighty men, the stories of heroism. Um, and I'm going to treat them as, as a unit. I'm going to tie them together uh, and see what we can understand uh, from both David's last words and these stories of, of gospel glory, the stories of courage uh, in, that we see from his mighty men. Um, so uh, to begin with, let's look at verses uh, 1 through 7. Uh, these are David's, David's last words, right? And that is the heading in, in my Bible, but it's also the heading in the text, right? These are the last words of David. Um, now, uh, Probably they're not literally his last words, right? We know that he gave instructions to Solomon. We know that he gave, you know, very particular and official uh, instructions to Solomon. So probably we can think of this as his last official word to the people, right? We know that at the end of his reign, uh, he was old and was not perhaps reigning as, as directly. Um, we certainly see his son Adonijah think that he can get away with things, right? And so it seems like this was probably his last official word to his people, perhaps you know, a form of last will and testament. Um, and as such, it's worth examining. What, this, this is the man after God's own heart. This is, this is debatably the central figure of the Old Testament, right? a, a wonderful and, and uh, uh, potent type of Christ. And so what did he have to say at, at the end of it all? What can we learn from it? First of all, it's uh, striking how he describes himself. Uh, what does he say? He says, David, the son of Jesse. That's the first thing, first thing he calls himself. Right. Son of Jesse. Uh, that's a humble, a humble action. Right? He says, what am I most fundamentally? Well, I'm, I'm the son of Jesse. I'm the son of a, of a well-to-do guy in a podunk city in, in Judah. Right? Bethlehem was a small town. Right? Why, why is he doing this? Why is he beginning with this humility? We see this, uh, th this example throughout the Old Testament. What, is, what does Jacob say before Pharaoh? He says, the days of my life have been shorter than my father's. Right? I, I'm not compared to my father's. Right? Uh, Elijah also uh, coming before God after, even after Carmel, Mount Carmel, and saying, I'm no better than my father's. Right? So you see this, this humility uh, of of David, uh, but he also describes himself as the one who was raised on high. Again, he was humble, right? He was watching sheep, and God took him and raised him on high. And David doesn't say, right, these are the last words of David, king of Israel. No, he says, these are the last words of one who God took and God placed on high, right? Uh, the anointed of God. The one who, it didn't just coincidentally happen to work out that, boy, I was there at the right time, Saul, right, things didn't go so well, and now here I am, king, you know, whoops-a-daisy. No, the, the, the anointed, the chosen of God, the selected of God, and David understands that. Uh, but then the last 
descriptor is striking and I think instructive for us. He calls himself uh, the sweet psalmist of Israel uh, or perhaps the, the singer of sweet songs. Uh, of all the things that he could have called himself, of all, of all of his accomplishments, and there were many, of all of David's accomplishments, why does he in, highlight being the sweet psalmist of Israel? Uh, he, he could have said, David, the slayer of the giant, right? But he didn't. He highlights the thing that he once remembered. The thing that he thinks was significant was the fact that he gave the people songs. That he gave the people words to sing to God. Uh, and this is, you could say that's, that's a striking and strange thing for him to want to highlight, um, but perhaps it's, it's really not all that different, right? Maybe the psalmist of Israel and the slayer of the giant, maybe, maybe worship is warfare, right? And maybe giving the people songs, right? Maybe giving the people words to pray to God, maybe that is actually a very potent act, right? politically, right? And, and even in their in their attitudes towards God. Um, yeah, so maybe by putting songs in the mouths of the people, uh, David really was doing his most potent act of leadership. Uh, and if, if that is so, how should we attend to, to our singing, right? How should we attend to our singing in the corporate body? And also, how should we attend to our singing around the dinner table or family worship or in the mornings or as we're, as we're walking along the way? So David describes himself but then in verses 2 and 3, he describes God, right? How, how does he do so? Well, he says, the spirit of the Lord spoke by me, which is kind of a bold statement, right? But also foundational to our reception of the scriptures, right? We don't take these words, we don't take them as David's words, we take them as the words of God. We say that, we say by faith, God gave his words to man. And thus, they are applicable to us. Thus, we receive them as the words of God. So, God graciously reveals himself to his people in the works of and in the words of fallible men. He also describes God. He calls God the God of Israel, which is a commonplace, something that we're accustomed to. But it is striking and actually very startling Right, God is the, is the creator. We, we, we confessed that just a minute ago. Right, God is God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. But here he's described as the God of a particular people. Right. Even more, more extreme, right, the God of Abraham, the God of one man, which again is, is a commonplace, something we're accustomed to saying. It rolls off the tongue, the God of Abraham, right? But maybe we can change the name to make it m more striking to us. Like, what if we said it was the God of Steve? right? That would be very strange to us. How, how can it be the God, the maker of everything, be the God of a man or the God of a people? That it is essential to who God is that he covenants with his people, that he is defined, right? he can be named the God of a certain people. And this is ultimately what we look forward to, right, in, in the end of all things, that God will be our God and we will be his people, right? And that is true now in parts and will be true uh, in full. It's a wild statement that the infinite God is the God of Israel, the God of his people, that we have a claim upon him. And not only is he their God, but he is their rock, it says, the God of Israel, the rock of Israel, right? That he is sure and faithful, even when they are faithless. 
right? that he is unchanging, dependable, sure, steadfast, even when his people are not. And then the rest of David's final words can be taken as sort of a handbook for what the good king should be. He's giving the people a job description, right? A picture. This is, this is what the good king should be. He must be just. He must rule in the fear of the Lord, right? And if he does so, how, will you, how can you tell? Well, he'll be like the sun, illuminating, warming, giving life to the earth. This is what the good king will be. And also he'll be discerning. You see two different metaphors there in, in the, uh, the David's final words, right? He says, he'll, he will be like the sun of the morning, which brings forth the grass. But then there's also the thorns. So the sun will bring forth the grass, but it, will, it must burn the thorns. There must be discernment. The king must weed out the evil, and he must promote the good. There will be faithful subjects and unfaithful subjects, and the king has got to discern the difference between the two. Now, I think that we can take this description of the godly king and apply it to what the godly father ought to be. Right? Fathers are kings of their home and must rule well, 1 Timothy 3 says. Right? There's a qualification for elders. If, if the father is not ruling his household well, then he is not fit to rule the household of God. So this, this picture of what the good king should be gives us an understanding of what the good father should be. So let's, let's meditate on these, these passages, these exhortations, this description of the godly king, and see if we can create a picture of what the good father looks like. So if, if the king should rule justly, so should the father. The father should rule justly. Literally, what does this mean? It means he should be righteous. He must be righteous, is what, is what the Hebrew word translated just literally means. How can the father be righteous? How can anyone be righteous? Well, he must lead his home, lead his family from a position of personal holiness, being cleansed from his sins. The good father is joined to Christ, and his rule over his family must fall must flow, rather, from that covenantal righteousness. That his position must be one who is in, in Christ. Right. Practically, this means that the Father should be the quickest to confess sins before God and before others. And this is one of the things we do corporately. We gather together. We kneel every Sunday. We confess our sins. Right. This is practice for what we do throughout the week. And also... In confessing sins, we must be ruthless in cutting off the sins that so easily entangle. So, refusing to give the devil a foothold, refusing to be uh, negligent in our pursuit of cutting off uh, the sins that, that, will, that will entangle us. Um, this means zero tolerance for treachery in our hands or, or in our hearts. Uh, or in our eyes. Uh, now, there's a, there's a caution here. There's, there's a way to have high standards that is actually death, right? That is, that is part of the law and, and the letter, which kills. But having high standards is not the same thing as legalism. It's not the same thing as saying, I'm going to do this thing in order that I may be righteous. I must 
I must do these particular things. We must not watch that sort of thing. Or we must not dress in that certain way or not speak in that certain way in order to be righteous. Rather, the logic flows the other way. You are righteous, bound to Christ, saved by his blood. And now, from that position of holiness, you are tasked to live a certain way. The image is not that of you know, a, a child living in the gutter, an, an urchin living in the gutter, trying to be clean in order so that the king will adopt them, right? It's, it's futile. Rather, the image is the reverse. The child has been adopted, has been cleansed, has been given robes of right, glory and majesty. And now the task is to live in a manner worthy of that calling. So, Fathers, guard your eyes from worthless things. Give bitterness and discontent no foothold in your heart. And by the power of the Spirit, shun the cowardness and the laziness that have been corrupting and ensnaring wiser men than you since the world began. But do so from the position of righteousness in Christ. Secondly, kings should rule in the fear of the Lord, and as such fathers should as well. Fathers are men under authority, kings under the high king. Uh, Jesus' title, the king of kings, is one that we often overlook. We, it, again, it rolls off the tongue, but it actually gives us an insight into the, the, the nature of, of the world we live in, right? He is the king over all other kings. The universe isn't, you know, a flat sheet of plywood with Jesus above everything, right? Rather, there is authority that flows from Jesus and then is possessed by men. True authority, actual authority is wielded by those under Jesus. The world is not a flat sheet of plywood. It has mountains and valleys and Jesus is overall. But this is, this is a tension. Fathers possess true and potent authority over their wives and children and that authority comes with an obligation to swear allegiance to the king of kings. Right? Fathers rule under God. Practically then, fathers rule as stewards. They guide and they govern their households in such a way as to present their wives and children spotless and holy before God. And a man who rules his household as a tyrant bent on his own pleasure or his own aggrandizement is a rebel, a rebel baron right? living in, in defiance of his king. So a father should bring his family to church, should submit to his elders, should humble himself before the mighty hand of God, and then should rule. He should manfully take hold of his household's tiller and steer it in wisdom and prudence and courage. And this means diligence at work, saving and planning for the future, attending carefully to the spiritual well-being of each member of the household. It means consistent washing with the word, and thinking generationally about the impact your household will have on the world and in the kingdom of God. And then the description of, of the king as, as being like the sun is lovely and instructive for us, and I think applies as well to what, what the godly father ought to be, right? shining down and blessing everything he touches. When, when dad gets home from work, it should be like the dawning of joy and covenant love. And this isn't to downplay the role of the mother in the household. 
but if dad comes home and everything's pretty much the same as it was before he got home, or a little worse, this is a drastic problem. And the interesting thing about the metaphor of the sun is that it is terrifyingly powerful and also very, very gentle at the same time. And this is also instructive to us, right? It, it, the sun is a ball of fire that we could never get within a million miles of, and yet it coaxes the, the daisy buds to life in the, in the yard. It's both of those. And dads ought to be like that too. Right? Dad goes out right, in strength and power, and yet he ought to be able to condescend to the smallest of his child's needs. So he goes out, he, re he wrestles with giants, he, he climbs mountains, he puts himself to great physical and mental exertion, right? using his God-given strength and intellect to shape the world as Christ would have it. And then he comes home, and he tickles the baby, and he kisses the wife, and he reads Dr. Seuss to the children. Right? Power under control. Imaging God by blessing as God blesses. And fathers should also fearlessly put away thorns. This is a bit ironic in, in coming from David uh, because David critically failed to put away some of the thorns in his kingdom, right? And he had to give Solomon instructions, hey, make sure you take care of this guy, you take care of this guy, you take care of this guy. So it's, there's, there's this irony in David's last words saying the king, the good king, puts away the thorns when David did not. And I don't think that's unintentional. Um, the curse of, of Adam is that the ground will produce thorns and thistles. And this is true in the garden outside the home, it's true in the garden of the home, and it's true in the garden of the heart. You wake up every morning and there's weeds again. Every time. Right? Everything's been peachy for a bit, and then out of nowhere up pops a, a thorny, complaining heart in your daughter. Or a, a weed of disrespect in your son. The thorns have to go. They won't get smaller if you leave them. So the faithful father must be diligent to discern the good from the bad and to do what is necessary to preserve the wheat and to get rid of the weeds. And, and when, when dads hear this, there can be a tendency to say, all right, time to get a new set of wooden spoons. Let the spankings commence, right? Reign of terror. And there's a place for a reign of terror, don't get me wrong, um, right? Effective discipline, effective punishment is, is part of this task, but often parents find themselves, we find ourselves demanding bricks without straw, right? Quick to spank for unrighteousness and slow to equip the child to live righteously. So the rooting out of thorns begins not with spanking, but with teaching and instructing. And once you have taught and clearly communicated the standard and when appropriate the logic behind the standard, well then you train, you practice, you play the obedience game, right? Where you tell your child to do something trivial and they run across the room and do it and they have to say yes sir, have to say yes ma'am and then you reward them. You play this game with them, teaching them, training them, equipping them. Right? And then after you have played these games and run scenarios and given examples and given them opportunities to live virtuously, then you bless obedience and you curse disobedience. That's when the spanking comes in. But that is the, that is the task of, of, of the godly father is to discern the thorns and discern them while they're small and pluck them up and get them away. But it's all terribly hard work. 
And David says as much in verse 7, which, which I love. Uh, the man that shall touch them must be fenced with iron and the staff of a spear. This, this is hard work. And as such, the, the, the man or woman who seeks to live faithfully before God in the world must be marked by great courage and strength. This is, this is the way of it. And I directed comments to, to fathers, particular application to fathers, but there are corollaries for the mother. There's corollaries for all of us. And, and broadly speaking, the Christian life considered on an individual level is a calling to strive and to suffer and to follow your master into the grave and out, day in and day out. And though corporately, all, all as a body together, right, the church is the bride of Christ, right, and there's, there's unity and harmony, which is more in line with, with the feminine, yet still, faithful Christian living is a terribly masculine thing. And the church is the bride of Christ, and it is also a band of brothers, right, sons of God in Christ the Son, modeled after his heroic sacrifice. And so, it's no surprise, it's entirely appropriate that God has given us stories of courage and sacrifice and daring heroism in the scriptures. There's an old Rich Mullins song that has a, has a line, stories like that make a boy grow bold, stories like that make a man walk straight. And so he's, God has given us in, in his mercy and in his kindness stories of heroism, stories of, of, of courage. So uh, let us attend to them. And let us see what we can draw from them. Uh, so the first, the first of these stories, uh, the first of these scenes, these little vignettes, uh, is, involves Adino the Esnite, uh, chief of the three. Right? And it's interesting, we've got the three and the thirty referenced in, and it's kind of tricky to figure out like who's in what and, and who's where and who's chief of what and, and why does the list of the thirty have thirty-seven names, but that's neither here nor there. Um, it's aside. Sometimes it seems like the Bible's bad at math, but I think God does it on purpose to just kind of mess with those of us with tidy minds. You know, he says there's, there's twelve tribes. Oh, but Levi doesn't really count. Oh, but Joseph is two. And actually, Manasseh is two as well. And then we're going to count Levi in again. You're like, so wait a second. <laughs> so there's 12. Okay, but now minus. Oh, no, now there's, thir there's four. Okay, 12 tribes. But, the, but there's 12 tribes. <laughs> and so you've got the 30, which have 37 names on it. And God says, yes, <laughs> indeed. You say, thank you. Um, but, but you do see, and it's not, it's not a stretch to see David with this group of three around him. And to go, wait a second king with three companions. I've seen this before, right? I'm not talking about Job, right? Jesus and his three close disciples. He has, he has the 12, but then he has the three, right? Which is, which is striking. And this seems to, again, go back to the fact that the universe isn't a flat sheet of plywood, but rather there is closer and, and further proximity. There is greater authority and lesser authority. Parable of the talents, again, right? You have some given five, some given two, some given one. Uh, this, is, this is the nature of things. So, you have uh, Adino the Esnite, chief of the three. And we're told shockingly little about him uh, for the fact that he's like David's mightiest man. Uh, all, all we're told is that he lifted his spear against 800 men whom he slew at one time. And this is remarkable on a number of levels. 
In fact, it's easier and, and safer and more comfortable just to gloss over it because it becomes stranger the more you think about it. So try to, try to picture it in your head if, if you can. Uh, imagine the force needed to, to make a, a killing stroke. Imagine the strength and speed and keenness of eye. Imagine that. Ooh, that sounds actually really difficult when I'm thinking about it. And now, pause, and now think about doing, I don't know, anything 800 times, right? Imagine cracking 800 eggs or throwing 800 tennis balls, right? If I really wanted to belabor the point, I'd have you all sit here and count to 800, right? Okay, now put those two together. Imagine delivering a killing blow 800 times. What sort of terrifying resolve and tenacity would be required? And that's assuming your enemies aren't, or that's assuming your enemies are, are docilely lining up to be killed, which I'm betting they weren't, right? So now add in to this difficult task, chasing all the bad guys down, right? Running around after them and avoiding their attempts to kill you. This is a story not just of courage. It is a story of courage. But hidden behind that is the fact that this is also a story of unflinching resolve and single-minded perseverance. And this is directly applicable to us. The task as, as a faithful Christian, wherever you have been called to serve, also requires that same perseverance and resolve. I know I just did it 700 times, but I need to do it again and again and again. And it hasn't gotten easier, but I'm to do it again. And I wasn't there, I don't know, but I would be willing to bet that the Philistines that Adina was fighting uh, got wise after a bit. You can imagine them, one leaning to the other and saying, hey, do you want to go try to fight the guy standing on the pile of corpses? No, me neither. <laughs> Let's leave, right? It, probably there was a general retreat. Probably that retreat turned into a rout, right? In military history, the most devastating uh, uh, um, casualties always comes when one side runs and gives no regard to their safety anymore and just tries to get out as fast as possible. That's when the casualties happen. So probably Adino the Esnite was standing there after killing a few hundred men, as one does, and he had to decide they're all running away now. He had to decide, is that enough? Is that good? Or do I chase them down and seek a more decisive victory for my king? And we have the same question put to us on a nearly daily basis, do we not, right? You, you've been partially faithful. You, you've given up until this point, right? You have faithfully discharged part of your duty. And there's that impulse to go, that was good. I'm, I'm done. I was, I was faithful. I did it, right? I, I didn't want to get off the couch and play with the kids, but I did. And now I can see that more is required of me, but now I'm tired and I, I want to be done. Rather than pursue with resolve and tenacity. Pursue your lusts and put them to death. Uh, the next hero we're, we're shown here is uh, Eliezer. And we're given a little bit more detail with him. Uh, it says particularly interestingly that he was with David when they defied the Philistines. So they're, they're living in defiance of the enemy, in defiance of, of the, the, the powers that be. Uh, and he fought until his hand clave to his sword. First of all, clave is a great word. But also, it, he, he, he fought 
until he could not let go of his sword. Everybody else ran, but he stood firm, and by him the Lord wrought a great victory. And the people who had fled came back only for the spoils. So everyone runs, he stays, defeats the enemy, and then everyone comes back and benefits from his victory, or from the victory the Lord wrought by him. And the detail about the hand cleaving to the sword is curious. And again, right, try to imagine it. Try to imagine doing something, gripping something so hard and for so long that you were actually unable to let go. Again, you have the tenacity and the resolve there. And it's remarkable and an example to us. But, but also, there's a mercy there that is striking. If I consider some, doing something incredibly difficult, what's my fear? My fear is that I will fail, that I will be unable to keep on doing it, not that I'll be unable to stop. Right? If I was asked to do 300 push-ups, I would assume that at some point I'd be lying on my face, unable to do one more. But that's not what happened in Eliezer's case. He didn't grow too weary to hold his sword any longer. He grew too weary to let go of it. Right? In a way, by God's grace, he was sustained for his task. In a way that probably was uncomfortable. But grace nonetheless. And we see this, this mercy in our case as well, right? Often, I'm sure you can think of times when you were called to be faithful to something and you, in faith, persevered and it was very uncomfortable and yet you look back and you think, wow, that shouldn't have worked, but it did. I was sustained. It doesn't mean I was comfortable the whole time, but I was sustained. The Lord was gracious. And then there's the, the, the third, third story here is, is Shammah, uh, the defender of lentils. And this is wonderful. Right? They're, they're fighting the Philistines. They're outnumbered. It says everybody runs away except Shammah. And he stays. And why does he stay? To defend the lentils. There's a plot of lentils, it says. And he says the Philistines aren't getting the lentils today. Right? And in Scripture... Lentils are not described in an overly positive light, right? They are described as a food source, but not usually at the top of the list. They're like an exile food source, right? When things aren't great, you eat lentils, which I resonate with that personally, right? They're, they're valuable, but they're not top, you know, top shelf stuff. And so the Philistines are coming, everybody runs away, and Shammah says, no, 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 no. Those are King David's lentils, you're not going to touch them. Try. And they tried, and it didn't work out so good. And this is a wonderful story because it captures so well our experience. Right? In, your, in your daily life, raising kids, working the job, loving one another, studying, honoring parents, serving the church, etc. It's Sometimes hard to see the, the big picture, the overarching value in the work, right? I'm here. There's the poopy diaper. Where's the glory in this? Right? Where does this fit? This is a plot of lentils, and I'm just not sure that it's worth the effort. And then Shammah says to you, oh, those are King Jesus' lentils. You don't necessarily see the value in them. But since when was that the thing that mattered? 
You were put here to defend King Jesus' lentils. Are you going to let the Philistines take them? Or are you going to stand your ground? Then there's the story of the time the Philistines had occupied David's hometown. All right, so this is, again, a flashback, back when David was on the run, right, in the cave of Adullam, right, running from Saul, hiding out, and this band comes and gathers around him, and they're fighting against the Philistines as they always were doing. And for some reason, we're not told why, but David longs for water from the well of Bethlehem. Apparently, it was really good water. And, uh, and in defiance of all sound military strategy, the, the three, Adino, Eliezer, and Shammah, team up, and they go to get David his cup of water. And the sheer audacity of the plan is worthy of comment, right? It, maybe I have an overactive imagination, but it's easy for me to imagine, you know, in the middle of the battle, and Adino, the chief, calls out, hey, our, our boss wants some water from the well. Do you, do you mind sending over a, a bottle or two? Also, we'd like lemons. No? You don't? Oh, they're busy. Do you mind if we come over and get some? No, no, it's okay. We'll, we'll do it. It's fine. No, come on, guys. And then they go out in the middle of the battle. It says that it's near the gate. It says that twice, right? The most strategic point of the battle. And they go out, and they get David his cup of water, and they bring it back. It's hilarious. And what does David do? He pours out the water before the Lord which always confused me as a child. Like, well, that seemed dumb. But you, you can take this multiple ways. I think, I think two will suffice. First of all, uh, David will not drink the blood of his men, is what he says. He says, this was, is, no, is no longer water, right? You purchased this water by your own lives. So for me to drink this would be like, ah, yes, thank you for your lives, glug, 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 right? He's saying that that, that sort of devotion is worthy of God. It's not worthy of me, which is, which is right and true. And secondly, I think we can see this, and we can say, you know, our master is worthy of our total devotion and reverence and our blood, right? And we ought to pour ourselves out for him. We, we ought to, like, the example of the three is fitting to us, right? Our, our master's smallest whim should be something that we ought to throw ourselves into. Again, the, the lentil principle again. Well, it may not be valuable to me, but these are King Jesus' lentils. And so therefore, I ought to just throw myself into it. But, but there can be, I don't know, you can leave yourself open to, to despair in that. Like, well, what do my efforts really matter? If he is so great and I am so small that his smallest whim ought to be worth my life, does it, how does it matter? How can, it, how can I really think that I contribute, right? What's, what's the point in, in a different way? I understand they're King Jesus' lentils, but how can I actually give meaningful service? And the example of David, I think, is instructive to us, that David did not just take the, effort, the results of his men, say, thank you, wonderful, now on your way, right? No, he recognized, he saw that what they had done was they had offered their lives, that he attended, he saw what they were doing, he saw what it meant and honored it as such. Right? And I think this is, this is helpful to us. We are reminded of God's loving care and his consideration for us, his people, that he sees your efforts. He knows your striving. And it is a sign of his infinite power that he made a world where your contributions can matter. 
that's, that's striking. He, he made a world, because he is so great, he made a world where your faithfulness matters, that it actually does contribute to the building of his kingdom, which is glorious. And the final thing we'll look at, the final story, uh, is that of Benaiah. And uh, his stories are different because they're much more individual. He kills a lion. He kills a lion in a, in a pit on a snowy day, which is a story all in itself. He defeats champions in single combat. He's a, he's a killer of, of lions and of giants. And as such, it's not hard to read. Who is he a, a picture of? Right, consider, if I gave you this description, right, a man goes against a giant with a stick and kills the giant with his own weapon. If I ask you, okay, who am I describing? 100% you say David, right, unless you had just read this passage. Right? Because here's the crazy thing. You become like your king. You become like your king. So Benaiah, in following David, becomes like him, becomes a picture of him, becomes a little David, right? And that's what Christian means. It means little Christ. It means one who is like Christ. We are bound to Christ. We are becoming more like him. This, this is just a, a principle of the universe. You always become like your king. If your king is Jesus, you become like him. If your king is self, you wither away, right? If your king is the world, right, the flesh and the devil, you wither away. But if your king is Jesus, you, you look like him. And, and we'll conclude here, because this, this ties everything together. It would be easy to listen to the stories of, of heroism and uh, mighty men in the past, or to consider the description of the, of the godly father in David's last words, and, and be crushed by the weight of the task. And they say, ah, ah, really? You just say, try harder? Right? I'm trying. I'm, I'm trying as hard as I can. And I still come up short. And maybe that's even true. But here's the, the glorious thing. Well, the, the world will, will tell you one of two things. The world will say, you know, I'm okay, you're okay, we're okay. Right? Actually, you're perfect just the way you are. Just don't even worry about it. Or it'll say, eh, strong survive, the weak fail, right? Try harder. You can't make it? Well, somebody call the ambulance, right? The, but the gospel of Christ says, in a way, both together. The gospel of Christ says that you are sufficient in Christ. You have been grafted into Christ. And now work. Right? That's, that's the glorious tension. It says you are righteous and now live righteously. Ephesians 2, right? you're saved by grace, not of works. In fact, you are the works. You are the workmanship, now created for works. Now go. It's, it's both. It's a glorious tension. Christ does not say to us either, you're okay, I'm okay, we're okay, or try harder, you pansy. Rather, he says, you have been chosen by no merits of your own. You've been given a new heart. Your sins are forgiven. Your debt has been paid by my very blood. You are now clean. You are being made new. You're being shaped after my image. As I am, so you shall be. We are bound together, and I never forsake my own. And now get to work. Right. The name Benaiah means built by Yahweh. And so are all who are in Christ. That's the Christian life. You were bought with a price and now sent out to fight the good fight, secure in the knowledge that Christ has placed his spirit in you and that you will become more and more like your king. Let's pray.
Our Father, thank you for your word that instructs us and teaches us how we ought to live. I pray you would strengthen us for our work, that we would rejoice in our position as sons and daughters of the King. I pray that we would be faithful uh, in our respective callings and that you would be honored by our life and by our work. I pray you would sustain us when we are weary. I pray that we would not grow weary of doing good, uh, but that we would reap uh, by your grace. We thank you and we praise your name. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen.